with play, you can get to it much deeper and much faster than you can with just words and pictures alone. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the whole story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's qlik.de slash data stories. everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Hey Moritz. Hey Enrico. How are you? Good, good, good. I just came back from vacations on the beautiful island of Spiekeroog in the north of Germany. Wow. That was nice. Sounds yeah. great. Camping. Camping. Camping for 10 days. Yeah. yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Vacations the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, but it was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm going on vacation time. soon as well. Yeah. I'm thrilled. Sweet. Sweet. Yeah, you yeah. should. Perfect. We need that sometime. Yeah. <laughs> so um, before we start, I want to mention very quickly uh, our Patreon campaign. So I want to, first of all, thank all the people who already pledged something. We are a little bit over halfway. And um, yeah, as we've been saying for a while, if you enjoy listening to the show, please consider pledging. So to do that, you have to go to patreon.com slash data stories, where we describe exactly why we do that, how we do that. And uh, once we will reach our goal, we will be able to switch to a show without advertisements. Right, Moritz? That's right. And there's 64 of you already contributing. That's amazing. Thanks so much. Yeah. And that's typically for a price of a coffee or latte every two weeks. <laughs> so consider helping out and uh, uh, supporting us so that we can continue making the show. Okay, let's dive right in with our guest today. Uh, today we have a new guest. The guest is Nikki Case. So Nikki is a designer and game developer who creates these really interesting and beautiful interactive simulations on the web and trying to help people understand complex issues. Hi, Nikki. Welcome on the show. Hi. Yeah, uh, you did that intro better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you on, Nikki. So can you tell us a little bit of about your work, what is, what is your background, how, what you are doing, how you started? Yeah, so what I do, uh, the way I describe it is, I tell stories about systems. Uh, I take the systems, the world around us, you know, social systems, physical system, political, economic, environmental systems, and I try to explain them through the systems of simulations, uh, playable, interactive uh, games. I try to make the complex simple through the power of play or something like, <laughs> like, like that. I don't know. Just, that, that's my elevator pitch. I, I need to work on that. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I guess like the real core reason for what I, for why I, I feel like this is powerful is because, you know, learning is not passive. It's an active process. You know, learning is about actually interacting with something, you know, your curiosity, your creation, your like prodding at like what the thing is. So I feel like we should like reflect that active process in the things we actually create. So, you know, if learning is active, then the things we make should also be interactive, uh, you know, or, or something like that. Um, 
yeah, how, how did I get started? Um, so I started off making games because, you know, I was a kid and I loved playing games. So I decided to make some. And just by coincidence, uh, making games required that I had to learn how to do programming, which turned out to be a valuable skill. Like, that was not my plan at all. Like, it was just a really nice side effect. I just wanted to make games. Um, and I, I really loved puzzle games. Uh, so puzzle games like Portal, Braid, um, these kind of games that like teach you, the player, really, really, really complicated systems. Mm-hmm. So Portal, if you don't know, it's about a game uh, where you have to like manipulate a space, like manipulate, like traverse like a non-Euclidean space, like create wormholes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Braid is a game where you manipulate time. Uh, so these are really complicated things and they teach it in such a way that is challenging and also, but also fun. And it's almost a shame that so many games don't actually apply this to teaching about the real world. They they teach about uh, systems that are, are really interesting and fun, but, you know, have no effect on, you know, your own daily life or the world around you. So uh, that's why I'm really interested in making uh, explorable explanations, which uh, are games. Uh, you can't see me do the air quotes in the air, but uh, games <laughs> uh, that teach about the complex systems of the world. Uh, using, you know, what we know from, uh, game design, how to teach it in a way that is, you know, fun and compelling and challenging and, you know, mm-hmm. actually resonates and sticks with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I feel this whole, like, there's a whole, like, class of projects now that f- fall into this nice label of explorable explanations that it seems like a whole new genre to me. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't aware before, or there is a lot of stuff happening right now in this space, but it seems to be exploding, at least in my view. And there has been this, like, this niche of gaming that's called serious games, I guess, or mm-hmm. serious gaming. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. And, but I think it's a bit different, right? So, would you say explorable explanations? Is it, a similar spirit to serious games, games that try to teach you like how maybe how war works or how economy works or something like this mm-hmm. um, uh, versus explorable explanations. Yeah, I feel like explorable explanations is more, I, I guess it has its roots more in uh, journalism and in uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. An, or like textbooks or like teaching stuff. So like, the explorable explanations I've seen um, tend to be more based in like, you know, text. Uh, mm-hmm. So like, you know, the New York Times, you draw it, or uh, my own work with Parable of the Polygons or To Build a Better Ballot. Uh, it's it's more text heavy. And I feel like uh, serious games, you know, they have their roots more in games. So they have more the conventions of, of games. You know, it's visual, there's characters, there's win states, lose states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like they're very similar in that they have the same goal they have the same you know value of like trying to teach these like important and complicated things but in a way that uh actually resonates with human beings with people uh but they're coming from different roots so explorable explanations comes from more of the tradition of you know text journalism uh education um and serious games comes from more of the tradition of uh you know uh, regular video games so yeah, it's the same goal, different routes. So I, you know, I really like that. It's like converging <laughs> no, on the maybe same. Maybe you can meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah they're trying to converge. <laughs> Let, on let's the same talk thing. about some of your projects because I think on the example, it's always people get best what what the whole idea of explorable explanations is. So one of I think probably your best known project is that fair to say is probably the parable of the polygons. Yep, because uh, I had yep. Vihart on that, and Vihart's fame just rubbed off. <laughs> on me. So that's that's the way to get famous. Just 
Worker famous people. <laughs> Piggybacking on, yeah. <laughs> on famous people. That's a good trick. So can can you tell us a bit about the, the project? Um so the the kind of like ironic thing about trying to like talk about these expo explanations is that I just like spent <laughs> yeah. like nine minutes saying about how you really need the interaction to get the sense yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm trying to describe <laughs> it like through words alone. So words. um yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I'll, I'll, but I'll try to give it my best shot. So, Parable of the Polygons is a story about a social system, about how, uh, how we divide ourselves from the bottom up, like without any malice or uh, bad intentions, but just from the bottom up, just small little seemingly harmless choices can create a harmful world. Um, so it's based off Thomas Schelling's, uh, well, now the late Thomas Schelling's, um, Work. Uh, so Thomas Schelling was a Nobel Prize winning uh, economist. And in the 1970, so there's actually a really great story uh, behind how he created this uh, model. Um, he was on an airplane in the 1970s and he was thinking about how, how did uh, New York City, that's where he lived at the time, how did New York City get so segregated? Like, you know, and or like how, why did so many major cities are also segregated, even though Jim Crow has been abolished uh, like a couple decades previously? And so he created this model. So this is interesting. So he created, so he just like pulled out a, ch a checkerboard on, on a flight and he put down some nickels and dimes to represent, uh, people of color and white people. And with a simple bottom up rule, uh, so the bottom up rule was each coin represented a person and each coin was living on this checkerboard grid of uh, like, you know, a, a grid like neighborhood. And each coin, you know, coin thought to itself, uh, if less than a third of my neighbors are like me, I'll move to a random empty spot. And, you know, that seems like, you know, not that bad. Like every coin would be okay, have, you know, being next to another coin of a different type. Uh, but Thomas Schelling found, like, on this little flight of his, like, you know, on a plane, <laughs> like, prototyping the simulation with a checkerboard and coins in his pocket... <laughs> uh, that these coins would divide themselves from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it creates like a really, at least like, you know, he's, he wasn't saying that, you know, this is how it happens. Like there's obviously like a lot of like top-down forces at, in play at a time, you know, with uh, public housing policies and all that. Uh, but he at least showed that, you know, it is at least plausible that some part of it, uh, it is bottom up, that we divide ourselves from the bottom up. And I feel like at least right now, um, this is really applicable to, yeah, not just race, but also the urban-rural divide that's happening uh, in America and also, I guess, in a lot of parts in Europe. Uh, Billy Bishop wrote a really great book called The Big Sort, and it's about how uh, people from the bottom up, you know, there's no top-down force here at play, uh, they just move to, you know, people move to areas where people are more ideologically like themselves. So from the bottom up, uh, people have been kind of segregating, kind of separating themselves um, mm. into, I, I don't like using this phrase, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, echo chambers, you know, their own bubbles, mm -hmm. com completely from the bottom up. And like, you know, no malice whatsoever. You know, it's a complete human thing. Why wouldn't you want to hang out with like-minded people? But the problem with that is that if everybody does this, this kind of accumulates and then we all end up dividing ourselves. Um, so anyway, that's like three minutes of backstory. Anyway, Parable of the Polygons. <laughs> it's about that. So you play with that same simulation that Thomas Schelling played with on, on that little plane. Uh, well, he just like created like five decades ago or so. 
Uh, so yeah, so it's like that, except uh, instead of coins, it's uh, a world of triangle people and square people, and they all live on the <laughs> grid, and they live in Shapeland, and so, you know, on and on. Anyway, you, you can drag and drop them, and, and I, I already gave away the, the plot twist here, like that they'll separate themselves from the bottom <laughs> up. But I have not given away um, how they can uh, reunify themselves, how they can unite themselves in the end from the bottom up as well. So go actually play with it. Yeah, that's that's Parable of the Polygons. Yeah, yeah, and it's really the structure is so nice because the same way you describe the problem now, you first present this problem and these simple mechanisms that seem inevitable, but then. Yeah, you can learn to figure something out, maybe to counteract these forces or to, I don't know, regulate a bit the problem and so on. And so, and you get walked through this sequence of insights and some of them you discover yourself, some you discover in the text and afterwards you maybe understood the problem of better and possible solutions. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I totally encourage everybody to just go to the page and, and check it out and play a bit with the simulations to, to get to get the whole idea. As Nikki said, it's it's really hard to, to describe. Yeah. And at um, the end there's like a sandbox and at the end there's a sandbox simulation mode. So uh, actually I I don't know if this is like so so in so in games sandbox mode means you can just play around with the rules with the specific mm-hmm. um the variables and 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 see, you know, what what if for like different scenarios, what if for different solutions. And so you can might be able to come up with, you might be able to like discover things that uh, we, the original authors, didn't even think about. And I think that's like mm-hmm. one one of many like really powerful things about Explorable by Explanations is that if done really well, um, the reader could play with uh, a model or play with something and f- discover things for themselves that the original authors didn't even think about. I, and that's something that we try to, um, creates imparable the polygons and what I, I keep trying to like uh, make in my own future work as well yeah that that's what I really like of of your simulations uh, so yesterday I spent a considerable amount of time replaying many of your simulations and it, it, it's a lot of fun oh thanks and and <laughs> <laughs> yes and I have to say that's what that's what makes simulations really interesting because as you start playing with them you understand the problem much better but you kind of like understand the problem more at a visceral level right it's not necessarily always explicit, right? I think we tend to explain things using exclusively our rationality. And when we explain them using text, we also try to walk people through the rational process, right? But when you can interact with a, with a simulation, I think there is another part of your brain that is working at a more experiential level. And, and this makes it really, really, really powerful because you are actually experiencing the effect. And I think that's what, that's what makes it really, really powerful. Yeah. Like one analogy I like to use, I know it's, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's like riding a bike. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you can, you can study as much as you want about angular momentum and gyroscopes <laughs> yeah. and yeah. balancing and all the physics of biking. And you wouldn't yeah. actually know how to ride a bike. But, you know, what you have to do is just like actually, you know, play around with the bike, you know, try and fail and try and fail and eventually you get it and eventually your intuition for the bike will be even deeper than your like conscious understanding of it like i i wouldn't be able to like consciously explain to someone else how to ride a bike uh mm-hmm. and even if i could um you know that wouldn't help so you know it's not a perfect analogy but that's what i think um hopefully explorable explanations can tap into is um helping people get a deeper intuition for something uh and just like a little side note it's like 
when people talk about, you know, we have to make this idea intuitive, that's good. That's really good. But it kind of ignores the fact that you, you don't have to just like, yes, make something uh, intuitive, uh, like changing the project so that's intuitive. But uh, the fact is you can also change someone's intuition over time. That's what learning a bike is. <laughs> like with enough mm. like play, with enough uh, practice, it actually changes your own intuition. And I feel like Hopefully with Explore by Explanations, if you play with simulation long enough, it also actually changes your intuition for how um, feedback loops work or how uh, bottom-up processes work or how humans work or how systems work. Because, uh, you know, you can study it, you know, with just uh, text and diagrams. And, you know, that's not that's not bad. You know, I, that's how I had to uh, learn it, you know, before I was able to create interactive stuff for myself. Like, you know, someone had to teach me with it just using text and uh, text and pictures but i feel like you know with play you can get too much much uh deeper and much faster than you can with just words and pictures alone Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i feel like what i had to learn you know through reading like dozens of books over a few years like i feel like i can communicate that a lot faster and a lot you know deeper uh through like a a half hour game uh, rather than several books over several years (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's very evident also in this second project that we wanted to discuss, which I think addresses an even more complex problem, which is the one on building a better ballot. And uh, that's fascinating. I've been reading it and playing with the simulations, and it's like, wow, <laughs> it's a, such a complex, uh, a complex problem out there. And, uh, and lots of counterintuitive um, states of the simulation. So can you briefly describe what the project is about? Okay, so I, I'm going to try to start with the, the why of the project. Oh, yeah, sure. So voting systems, they're complicated. And uh, uh, so <laughs> I guess for like context, um, all right, so I'm going to use a U.S. example because I'm living in the States right yeah. now. But, you know, I understand the audience is... Uh, pretty worldwide. Um, and so in 2000, uh, there were three, you know, there were the two main candidates, uh, George Bush and Al Gore. Um, but there's also this like really popular, uh, third party candidate, Ralph Nader of the Green Party. And so just like the problem with, uh, the U.S., well, one problem with the U.S. voting system. Uh, so the U.S. voting system, uh, is something called first past the post, which is a confusing name. Uh, basically what it means is that you can only vote for one candidate on your ballot. So even if you really like, uh, Ralph Nader, but you also like Al Gore, you can't say that on the ballot. You can only pick Ralph Nader or Al Gore. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, uh, nations also have this voting system, you know, but the problem with this is, you know, Ralph Nader is closer politically to Al Gore than George Bush. So George Bush is a Republican uh, on, you know, right wing Republican. Uh, Al Gore was a left wing uh, Democrat. And Ralph Nader was a very, very uh, left wing uh, Green Party uh, candidate. And Ralph Nader was very popular. Uh, but because you cannot vote for more than one person on the ballot, what happened is... Uh, Ralph Nader stole, and I'm using air quotes again that you can't see in audio, <laughs> stole votes from Al Gore. And so a- a- as a result, uh, Ralph Nader stole sufficiently enough votes from Al Gore that uh, Al Gore uh, tied uh, to George Bush. And then the Supreme Court uh, picked uh, George Bush. Uh, and so this is called the spoiler effect, when you have a very popular third party that can steal 
again, quote-unquote, quote, steal votes from another party. And, you know, this is just, yeah, one example of the spoiler effect. Another one, um, arguably, was when Ross Perot, uh, who was an, uh, like an independent, uh, stole votes from Bush Sr., letting Clinton win. So I'm using, like, another example from the other side where, um, an mm-hmm. independent, a third party stole votes from a Republican instead of a Democrat this time. So, you know, it's hurt both major parties in the U.S. before. Uh, so you would think we would change it at some point, but, uh, no, no, we, uh, we have not. <laughs> um, so to build a ballot ballot is about this to explain not just the spoiler effect, because that's just like the first one fifth of the exp- interactive uh, explanation, but to also explain a visually and interactively not just the problem, but all the solutions that people have uh, come up with in the last like couple centuries. Because like people have known about this problem for a century and a half, and we have had solutions for a century and a half, but <laughs> we just haven't gotten around to implementing them for some for some reason. Yeah. Uh, to, to be fair, maybe because nobody explained them well to politicians. <laughs> maybe that could be the thing. Because right? when yeah. I looked this up before yeah. I made this uh, interactive, I I only I've only seen one visual explanation of it like everything else has been like in text and mathematics and really complicated equations and game theory and i've seen one visual and like not even interactive it's just it's just a visual it's just a visualization of it Uh and it was in like 2007 and one visualization in 2007 like several cent like a century and a half after these problems have been uh, recognized yeah yeah, so um, I, I'm kind of proud to say this. Uh, I, as far as I can tell, my work is the first, or maybe you know, maybe second. I don't know. There's probably another one out there, but you know, one of the first. You know, hedging here, interactive explanations of this problem, not just the problem, but also its solutions. Um, so the most popular alternative solution is uh, instant runoff voting, which I know that Australia is uses for its parliament. So there's instant runoff voting, but there's also a board account, Condorcet method, and uh, then these two other methods, which I really like, um, but no uh, no government actually uses them right now, approval voting and score voting. Uh, so these yeah. are like five different alternatives uh, that I explain through simulations that you can play with in this simulation. And at the end, there's another sandbox where you can play with the parameters, you can move around the candidates, you can choose the voting system, you can choose how many voters there are and like how they're distributed and see how that interacts with uh, the different voting systems. Yeah, and I think that with this simulation, uh, it shows stuff that uh, I haven't seen in other simulations. Like what if the voters are polarized? Because most simulations, and again, these simulations are explained in text and in mathematics and in really unreadable to be honest um words and jargon uh but with this one you can just visualize it what if a, instead of um just a regular bell curve of like gaussian distribution or whatever uh it's distributed you know polarized or what if uh candidates are really close together or far apart or like what if there's five candidates you can just drag them around what if there's two political axes not just left and right but also um i don't know insurrectionist versus institutionalist you know someone who's more populist versus someone who's more establishment, which was a really big deal in uh, the 2016 uh, U.S. election. Uh, you know, to put it lightly, that was, uh, that was a thing that happened in the 2016 U.S. election. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you can play with all these complex parameters, and but because it's visual and because you can actually play with it, it's a lot more, you know, actually understandable. You can actually 
grasp it. You can actually, you know, touch it. You can, you know, you can actually touch it. You know, it sort of works on the touchscreen. It's not very good on the touchscreen, but you know, you can actually drag and drop them. <laughs> you know, it's actually tangible. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should explain. So the basic model you use to explain all these different like systems of voting is that there's sort of a space, like a Cartesian space. There's a plane and the candidates are placed on that plane and the voters too. And you might be closer to a candidate or further away. And I think this is the main trick you came up here with that you say is like, ah, actually it's, it's not binary. There's like, there's complex arrangements of people. Some are closer, some are further away. And then the question is, how, how is that influence spread, spread in that space? Right. Or <laughs> how, what are the effects of different uh, algorithms, how to divide that space or something like this? So I think this mental model is probably the, the the biggest achievement here right to to come up with this basic idea of i could talk about voting in terms of a space right mm -hmm. is that fair to say yeah yeah you can talk about voting in terms of a space and also like another thing that i was hoping for in the interactive so uh at the end you can create your own simulation uh and you can mm -hmm. actually share your own simulation uh so i was hoping that people would uh be able to like create counter arguments against me or like create like additional arguments um using Uh, the sandbox mode uh you know in the end like only a couple people did but you know still that's pretty impressive that like someone could mm -hmm. use the simulation and like create their own simulation and like uh like build off on my argument or build an argument against my argument using the same uh model uh so yeah people created their own like miniature explorable explanations in response to my explorable explanation thanks to the tool that i put at the end of the uh at the end of the interactive yeah yeah That's nice. How, how did you come up with this basic, the, the model itself? Uh, is it something, did you try out many alternatives or was it to you immediately clear, ah, oh, it should be like a two dimensional space and candidates are arranged? Um, so yeah, I have to really give credit to, uh, Kaping Yi, uh, who I mentioned earlier, he created this, uh, visualization of voting systems. The only visualization I've seen of voting systems in 2005, not, not 2007. He created this, um, yeah, visualization that, uh, brought forth, as you mentioned, that two dimensional axis. So that, that's, that's where I got that idea. And I mean, you know, people have talked about the political spectrum as a multi-dimensional, uh, thing. Before, you know, a lot of people have already known that, you know, it's not just a left-right spectrum. There's also a zillion other dimensions. So, yeah, like at least having two dimensions, it seems like, you know, a, a bare minimum. Um, but yeah, Capping Yi's visualization is the first one I saw that actually really showed how different voting systems, like, you know, how, 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 how they fare. Um, in this visualization and, and I actually really learned something really important from his visualization. So before, uh, I already knew that instant runoff voting was not really that good, uh, because, um, in the 1960, Kenneth Arrow, a game theorist, uh, proved that any voting system that involves ranking choices, uh, will be flawed in some way. Uh, however, his, uh, his analysis does not apply to approval voting and score voting because in those voting systems, you don't rank it. But anyway, the point is, uh, beforehand, I didn't, I already knew that instant voting was not that good, but only with Kapingi's, uh, visualization did I see how absolutely terrible instant runoff voting actually is. And, and is the most popular alternative. Uh, Australia uses it for their parliament. Uh, I'm in, Uh, Boston right now, and I think, sorry, no, not not Boston, but Cambridge, uh, their local city council uses instant runoff voting for their mayor. And um, a few years ago, uh, the UK uh, ran a referendum on whether they wanted to switch over to instant runoff voting for their parliament, and the people rejected it, um, partially because 
yeah, instant runoff voting is really, really complicated, and it doesn't really provide that much of a benefit over first past to post. I mean, it, you know, it provides benefits, like it's more expressive and it's at least slightly immune to the spoiler effect, but it, it's, it's, I, I, I don't think it's a good system. And a lot of people disagree with me uh, on, on this, but yeah, only with this visualization and with, uh, I think what, what I added to this is with the interaction is showing, you know, with capping these visualization, uh, it's only in a few specific case scenarios. So you could think, oh, maybe he's just cherry picking. But with interacting, you can mm-hmm. actually like choose the different scenarios. You can see that, mm-hmm. no, this is true in like a lot of scenarios that, um, uh, that alternatives like, uh, approval or score, uh, would be better than, uh, first, than first past the post, but also, uh, instant runoff. Uh, I also wanted to mention, like, there's something I need to update in my, in my explore by explanation is that, um, I, in the explore by explanation, at the time of writing, uh, Justin Trudeau of Canada, uh, where, uh, where I'm originally from, I'm originally from Canada, he promised he was going to change Canada uh, over to a new alternative voting system, but he's since backed down on that promise, so I need to go back and edit. <laughs> I need to edit that, I need to like cross out everything I said about that. <laughs> the world keeps changing, well, it's horrible. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's great. I mean, it's... it's I think many people are not even aware that there are that there are alternatives to just simple who's your favorite and then winner takes it all, <laughs> you know. So uh, I think alone the fact that there's this variety of voting systems out there is probably for many people already a mind blowing uh, insight. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, yeah. Yeah. So Nikki, um, one thing I'm curious about is um, what's your opinion on how the elements that you use in your projects could be used more often in in data visualization. I think what, what happens is that in visualization, often you have, first of all, mo- in most of the cases, you people create visualizations out of existing data rather than uh, simulations, which is already a, a big difference from some of the work that you do. And... Um, and I also really like the way you are using interaction and this idea of playability as a way to learn, to, to discover things and better understand the complexity behind the problem and so on. So how do you think visualization designers and professionals can use some of these elements more often and better in their own projects? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that I find it really weird that I keep getting uh, invited to like a data viz stuff like this, like this podcast <laughs> or like conferences because I've never actually visualized any real data. It's all been simulated. Well, that's, that's <laughs> fine. Doesn't make it yeah. not visualization, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. visualization. It's just, I, 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 I like to call the stuff I do a uh, system visualization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think that that's what people find so fascinating. Yeah. Because, the original idea of data visualization is to amplify cognition, like yeah. really give us tools for thinking. And we've, yeah. we've had so much focus on just making pictures of data, you know, that this whole idea of let's actively think and figure something out using a visual, like, like, uh, you know, these manual calculators or uh, yeah. sketching as, as tools for thinking has yeah, been totally like buried in just like cool chart types and so on. And so I think that's why people are so fascinated with your work is because it reintroduces this idea of amplifying cognition. Really. Yeah. Tools for thought. I, I just love that so much. <laughs> and like thinking about like how, like, 
even like like you know like data visualization like you know charts and Venn diagrams have been like so embedded into our culture and our cultural consciousness that we don't even think about it anymore. Like we say, oh, the stock market went up, and it's like. <laughs> before before charts were a thing, the idea of numbers going up never made any sense. Like you know, numbers could be bigger or smaller, but numbers yeah. going upwards, like like actually going in a vertical direction, like that made no sense. But like it's just so natural to us now. Like the idea of a chart is so natural to us now that yeah, we can say oh yeah, the number went up, and it's like a few centuries ago that would have made no sense whatsoever <laughs> so yeah like it is really a tool for thought and it's not just like a tool for thought like it actually it's embedded into our brains now as i mentioned before as i went on a huge rant about before uh learning is not passive it is an active process even if it's just someone is just reading something uh they still have to actively construct it back in their own heads it's not like your neurons in your brain fly out of your mouth and into someone else's ear and then the neurons you know and then your neurons like stick into their brain you know you don't transmit information like that like people have to actually reconstruct what you've been saying uh you know in their own brains like like constructing it you know rebuilding it using the assumptions they already have using the experiences they already know and the stuff already that you know they have to rebuild stuff, not just using the words you said, but also their back, their own background knowledge. And yeah, I feel like, you know, that's why, you know, people are really bad at communication because, you know, they, they know what they mean. They, they already have all the background information they have, but, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the recipient does not. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, like even in like a quote unquote passive medium, like, uh, text or video or a podcast, you still have to, reconstruct it in your head it is still interactive so why not bring out this interaction uh out from your head and into and into your hands like into actually interacting with the thing itself asking questions and i mean like this this podcast right now this this conversation like this is a lot better than me just like having a monologue and it's like me rambling or, like a bullet point list of what i feel like your audience should know like we're actually having mm. a conversation like you're asking questions that uh, you did not send me on this list, so I'm this is actually this is actually <laughs> improvised right now. Like I'm actually improvising this. This was not on the list before. Um, so yeah, like with a conversation, it is a lot deeper. It's all a long explorable explanation. Yes, like we're, this is this is exploration. We're actually exploring each other right now. So yeah, like a conversation, I feel like a dialogue is better than the monologue. So that's if if I had to like have like one quote, like just like to sum up my philosophy. A dialogue is better than a monologue. And yeah, learning is interactive already. So why not bring that out from your head into your hands? So I feel like, yeah, um, game design is basically applied psychology. So why not, uh, use more of that in, uh, data visualization or visualizing anything? Uh, yeah. and I guess like to give more concrete examples, uh, the New York Times has done a really great, uh, series called You Draw It, mm -hmm. where instead of just giving you a graph, it asks you to draw the graph first, uh, to put down your expectations on the table. And then it shows you the real data and it compares your understanding of reality to what reality actually is. One of my favorite examples, they did a You Draw It about different epidemics in America. Mm -hmm. And I knew the, the opioid epidemic was bad, but I did not know that the opioid epidemic is now killing more people <laughs> than the AIDS epidemic did at its peak. Like that was oh, horrifying. Wow. Yeah. And like, wow. if I was just shown the graph, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't would have noticed that. Like I wouldn't have like made a connection in my mind, but like by actually having to draw it and like having my expectations disrupted, 
I was in like in a more heightened state of mind, you know, when you're surprised, when your expectations are violated, then you're like, your, 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 your ears are perked up, your eyes, you know, actually dilate. <laughs> you're more attentive and like it actually sinks in deeper. Um, there's this quote mm-hmm. I really like from Dan Mayer, who's talked about this idea called expectation failure, which is this idea from educational psychology, where if you want to uh, teach someone, you have to surprise them first. And the way he mm-hmm. phrases it, this is a quote I really like. First, you have to give someone the headache, then you can sell them the aspirin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's lots of things you could uh, you could do with uh, interactive visualization. You could do like yeah, they could have a dialogue. They could have the expectations violated. They could have they could ask what if questions. They could like create their own solutions. They create they could create counterexamples that the author didn't think of. There's like so many possible functions you can actually do that. Yeah, it just does not uh, really exist in the space right now. That I feel like mm-hmm. would be really beneficial if we uh, we actually did this. Yeah. I have a practical question because it's I, I I find this format so fascinating and a lot of people love it. And I think especially in journalism since Snowfall, you know, the, the prototype for the very long page with lots of different interactive elements and text uh, done by the New York Times, I guess five years ago or something. It has become a genre, and but what from a practical point of view, what I find so hard is how to design that narrative flow, like how to make sure people are drawn into the piece and then sort of engage with the individual sections in a good way, but also continue to read, but also take away like the more subtle and nuanced points, like how do you how do you design that that journey for the user, and also do you do you track, for instance, if people like if most of the people just get stuck on the first simulation and never see the second one or, or something like this? Like, do you, do you track uh, mm-hmm. user behavior? And also, what are your tricks there, or what are techniques you feel have proven useful to to make sure people keep going and get what you try to get across? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I really thank you for this question because yeah, now this is the part that can be actually practically useful to you, the the the, the listener. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yes, actual practical tips. So the way I go about it, at least this is for me personally, is I act like a tour guide. For example, like there's this really great, uh, you know, system or simulation or idea that I want to show off, but I want, you know, to show it off in a more or less linear-ish way, um, but with um, small areas for exploration. I- I'm not against linear, passive, quote-unquote passive, you know, stuff. You know, I, I use text all the time, uh, but I feel like, you know, there's, there's a pros and cons, like this strengths and weaknesses to both interactives and to text. And I feel like what explorable explanations can really, really do, uh, is like combine the two so that, uh, where text has its weakness and the weakness of text is that you can't explore it, uh, interactives mm-hmm. can step in. But where does the weakness of interactives, uh, which is, you know, it's unguided and, you know, you need at least some structure to be able to actually understand what you're mm, doing. Might get lost. And yeah. yeah. And like, sometimes you just have to use text. You can't visualize everything. Like, I don't know. How would you visualize a concept like historical dialecticism or, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. That's the most obscure thing I could mm. think of. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, by switching back and forth between text and um, interaction, you can have the best of both worlds. So the way I go about it, you know, practical tip number one is act like you're a tour guide. And another practical tip is I try to start with 
assimilation as quickly as possible. I need to use like some text to like set up what the simulation is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I try to like start with a simulation as quickly as possible so that one people that, so that immediately, you know, if people have never seen an explore by explanation before that they know, oh, this is interactive. So like, you know, this is not going to be like a normal, uh, thing. So I need to be more engaged. So like, you know, that sets the expectations up front, mm-hmm. but also, you know, it's a good taste of like what's to come. So, you know, act like a tour guide, show them the interactive thing first. And then like give them like some context and like show them another part of the interactive thing and then give them more context. So yeah, well, what I do in my interactive, uh, explore by explanations is that it's really usually only one simulation, but each instance of the simulation, uh, is a different part of the simulation, uh, or it's a different, you know, it uses different variables. So yeah, I would like to think that, you know, most of my work is it's just one simulation or like one system. Yeah, one system mm. I'm trying to tell a story about. Yeah, it's a story about systems. So yeah, it's one, it's only one system I'm trying to teach, uh, to tell you a story about, but I only, mm. I show you one part of the system at a time. Uh, and by the end, I usually have a sandbox mode where you can play with the entire system because by, by that point, you already understand all the parts. And also how the parts actually interact with each other. Mm-hmm. B- but you built the sandbox mode first, more or less, to figure out what the best like basic model is, and then you strip it down uh, for the beginning of the piece. Is that right? Uh, come think about it. Yeah, that's. It sounded a bit like that. It's like that sounds sort of what I <laughs> uh, how I go about it. Uh, yeah. Like it is like very hard. Like creating an entire sandbox is really hard. Uh, hmm. So I tend not to do that first. I guess like what I do is kind of go, I think I start in the middle. Uh-huh, uh-huh. In the very beginning, it's like a very simple simulation. Uh, but in the very end is the full sandbox. I think right, my right. first prototype is usually something that's right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then I prototype that and like see how people like that. And then when I want to create a story about that, first I have to find the small part, the, the subsection of this simulation that might be the best like introductory uh, part. And then also like trying to think, you know, uh, you know, once people have played the simulation, oh, what, what else do they want to see? What other variables do they want? What other rules do they want to apply? Um, like, how else do they want to explore the system? And then I build that up into the uh, into the sandbox mode. So yeah, that's a good point. I, I never thought about this before. I, I kind of start in the middle, and then I work downwards to like what is the simplest part that's the most interesting, and then I work upwards to what what other stuff can I add to this that people might want to know about and play with? Yeah, and. Maybe you can also briefly comment on what kind of technologies and methods you used to do that. I know that some of our listeners like the geeky, geeky stuff behind the projects that we describe. So do you have any favorite tools or programming mm. languages? So, and how does the process work typically? So. For this question, my answer is disappointing because it's incredibly <laughs> simple. I just use JavaScript and yep. HTML5. I, I don't actually even use libraries that often because the simulations I do have to be really custom. So I don't even use D3. I, I don't even use jQuery. Like I yeah. just <laughs> write it all myself mostly. Like once in a while, I'll use a very small, like 0.3 kilobytes library because I don't feel like writing my own messaging framework yeah but uh other than that yeah i it's like specific tools uh sublime text google chrome that's it <laughs> yeah that's great <laughs> yeah oh actually i i, I oh I, I guess i also do draw my art in um uh adobe flash uh oh. ironically <laughs> yeah. wow yeah. That's, <laughs> that, that, that's that's how yeah. i got into making games i started off in flash and so right, right. and like yeah. the for some reason adobe's 
Adobe Flash's keyboard shortcuts and interface is completely different from for Adobe Flash than all of its other products. So I but, can't yeah. transfer, or I can't easily <laughs> go over to Illustrator. I have to keep using Flash because I'm kind of locked in now. Yeah. Even though my stuff is all HTML5, I still make my art in Flash. <laughs> and and it was made to do like interactive animations, you know, so it's sort of, you know, it's actually, yeah, it's one of the only tools that was actually conceived for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So. And actually like this is kind of sad, but I feel like Flash is still, it's a really good tool. And like, I cannot, there is no, like even in HTML5 space, I can't think of any, yeah, there's no tool like Flash was really great. You could just like jump in, draw something, put in some code, yeah. and you can make your own choose your own adventure game. Like that was really simple. Like there is no such equivalent for HTML5. What, seven years later, there is still nothing yeah. as like accessible as Flash for HTML5. There there really yeah. isn't. And that makes it really hard, I feel, for people who just have a cool idea and just want to get started quickly to to get over the threshold and understand yeah, how to do cool stuff on the web today. You have to know about like 20 different libraries, or at least it feels like, right? And development tools yeah. and, and yeah. Yeah, that's also partially why I don't use libraries because there's like a new one every yeah, Always year, around the corner. Like every few months. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, to, to be fair, there's like a few libraries I use over and over again. Um, MinPubSub, which is that messaging uh, publish-subscribe framework. And also for the most, uh, for the more uh, graphic-intensive visualizations I use, I use pixie.js mm -hmm. uh, because optimizing graphics is hard. <laughs> yeah, and it's the, the code is just like Flash. And so I love pixie. Yeah, so pixie.js is just like Flash. I think maybe that's why I love it because it's like, maybe I'm just like lying to myself. It's like, oh, it's much more efficient. No, maybe it's just nostalgia value that I'm just using this <laughs> library. Like, I mean, it is, it is very efficient, but maybe it's also partially just, just nostalgia, you know, dot go to and stop frame it's like ah oh, ah <laughs> oh, my childhood <laughs> uh, okay so maybe we can talk a little bit about the future so do you do you have any any projects you're working on right now so what what's gonna coming up next um we're curious to hear what your plans are a uh, future for me or future for explore by explanations uh both <laughs> you choose all right yeah, because I was thinking, uh, I'm going to start with the future for Explore by Explanations because because uh, we were talking about tools just now and how there's a complete sure. lack of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. I feel like the biggest hurdle right now is that there are basically no good tools. And I've made a, a couple tools and like they're very, very limited. Uh, so yeah, there, there are no good tools right now for making like these kind of interactive uh, things. And maybe there won't ever be a general purpose uh, explore by explanation tool. Like maybe there'll be a tool for making you draw it. Uh, I, I've made tools for specifically, uh, simulate, creating simulations about mm -hmm. cellular automata and also creating simulations of feedback loops. So maybe in the future, uh, there'll just be a whole bunch of very domain specific tools that, uh, people can then like mix and match. Cause like the nice thing about explore by explanations is that, you know, you can just embed a simulation from anywhere. So maybe you can embed in a simulation that's one of them is a feedback loop, another one is a cellular automata, another one is a, is, is a, is a Socratic dialogue, another one is a you draw it. 
like maybe that yeah maybe maybe that maybe that would be the future like a whole bunch of like specific domain specific tools because the the nice so there's a trade off between you know how accessible something is and how domain general it is and mm. the, the domain general tool is just programming so maybe in the future there'll be more domain specific tools for different kinds of interactions like playing with feedback loops or you draw it mm. playing with graphs I mean there is different genres of simulations or yeah, like different yeah, specific types of things and so yeah probably like if something is more like forces and particle based or more yeah. like uh, I know zero sum games you know so there's these types of yeah systems so probably if you had like one great environment to work on one of those that would be pretty cool yeah kind of like a Swiss <laughs> army knife Swiss army knife of yeah. a whole bunch of different tools that you just carry around yeah Did you follow Mike Bostock's work on D3 Express? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, it's like so cool. And I'm looking like, I mean, like he showed off this amazing thing. And at the end he says, well, it's not out yet. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your headache. No uh -huh. aspirin for you. <laughs> yeah, nothing for you yet. But yeah, I'm so excited for it. Yeah, no, but he's working on it. And there is a beta, I think, already in the works. And some people have been using it. And the idea is, uh, maybe uh, for the listeners, is to have um, an interactive page, more or less, an interactive environment. And basically, you, you have little code lines and you define variables as you would do in programming, but everything's connected in a reactive way in the sense that if you define something depends on something else, this dependency will stay. And if you change mm -hmm. the value of the origin, it will propagate through your network of dependencies, basically. So it sounds perfect for building <laughs> really cool uh, interactive simulations and explorable, uh, explorable uh, uh, explanations and so on. So I, I would be quite quite yeah. interested to see what you would be doing with with a like, playground like this. Yeah. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so, yeah, that's one barrier uh, is the lack of tools. Another one is, um, I guess... I guess more meta is like, how do you make money doing this? Because it's uh -huh. a lot. Because, you know, if you're just writing text, that's like, you know, you, you can be a hobbyist uh, blogger and, you know. Right. I mean, you, know, you still need money or at least you can just do it as a hobby. But, you know, even if you're doing it as a job, you know, it's less costly than programming an entire simulation. So, yeah, that's another thing that's a, kind of a missing, like, you know, like actual economics here. Uh, so the tools, the economics... Um, what else? Also, I feel like how, how do you do it currently? Maybe oh. like how how do you how do you finance all this oh. work that you that you put into your your pieces? Thanks for asking me again because you asked this earlier. But now this is a good <laughs> opportunity for me to plug in my Patreon. I <laughs> am Patreon.com/slash/ncase. That's the letter N mm -hmm. and then case as in the word, uh, Nikki Case. Yeah. So that's how I'm mostly financing myself. Uh, I'm not quite break even yet, but But yeah, it is really helping me um, not plummet to my doom as quickly. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> pa Patreon is a real lifesaver uh, for me right now. So that's how yeah. I'm financing myself right now. Thank you for asking. It's a good plug. Patreon.com slash N case. <laughs> N case. Totally. Go there immediately. Stop listening. Yes. If, if, if you back yeah. me $5, you can get yeah. a little polygon drawn of you. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. If you back me $10 <laughs> per month, you can get a little uh, peep character drawn of you. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's it's a really interesting question because, I mean, you obviously do work that's super valuable, that's super interesting to lots of people, you know. But how can we, yeah, how can we create uh, environments where 
I think you should naturally be able to live off that. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like, it yeah. should be a no-brainer in my world. But the question is still like, how? Yeah, how can that work? And yeah. Patreon is one way, and I, it's great to see you're really successful there. And but maybe it's not the only thing. Yeah. Maybe yeah, maybe grants or like some foundations can step in. And I don't know. It's I, I think this you you should be able to to live off that obviously right yeah and you brought up environment and like that's i guess the third thing so tools the economics but also like a, a community and an environment because right mm. now it's like a herd of cats you know we're a herd of cats we all do our own thing because you know this is what happens when you have a bunch of like independent introverts <laughs> working on the same <laughs> idea is that uh there's not really a community right now we follow each other on twitter and we talk to each other once in a while But right. there isn't really a community. Like uh, I did set up a a Slack a, a, a while back, um, and yeah, there's mm -hmm. a small community there. But you know, how how can this scale up? You know, uh, I also have a website, uh, Explorables, uh, and the es is dot es. Yeah, I finally mm -hmm. got that that that, that good domain uh, thanks to a, a friend of a friend. <laughs> yeah. We do the same trick with data story. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a good. The, the, yeah. the Spanish domains are popular. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good. It's a good domain. Yeah. So, but yeah, I really need to update a website. I haven't updated it in a year. So I need to update it so that, you know, I can actually be a little nucleus point yeah, for But it's really cool. A There's a lot of projects and a lot of explanations how to do explorables. Yes. And like this is oh, tutorials. That's the other thing. Yeah. There are no, yeah. there are very few tutorials on how to That's actually true. make That's true. an explorable yeah. explanation. Yeah. And it's actually, yeah. ah, this is the kind of thing that I really feel bummed out about, like about the new. Like blogging platforms, like I mean, like I maybe maybe again it's just nostalgia, and I'm just whining about oh the good old days where everyone had RSS feeds. Actually, no, I feel like RSS feeds are still a good thing. You know, they're still a good thing. But um, it's really hard. You know, you you can't embed iframes in Medium or in Tumblr. Mm. So yeah, like you can't do explore explanations on those. That's true. But you know, compared to like say you know a WordPress, you can do whatever you want on a WordPress. Yeah, like short of like WordPress, there aren't really any blogging platforms that let you embed interactives. Like mm. Facebook lets you embed videos and so does Twitter, but you can't really embed a game, you know? So I mean, maybe it's just me again being nostalgic for web 1.0 with, you know, <laughs> with, with WordPress and uh, setting up your own Drupal <laughs> instance and RSS feeds. You could actually modify stuff. If you wanted to embed a game in your own blog, you could do that. But, you know, you can't really do that nowadays. So I don't know. Like, yeah, first of all, we need like a tutorial. On how do you make your own explore by explanations, given that none of the mainstream platforms actually allow you to do this? So maybe there will be even more people in the future creating this kind of explorables. Yep. So if any of our listeners is interested in that, maybe you can briefly comment on how one could get started with this. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, so explore by explanations. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So good. say that so one no of our one... listeners is is interested in starting, never tried before. What would be the first steps? Yeah. Okay. Good. More pragmatic, practical advice. All right. So. All right, first step is, uh, all right, given that there are no blogging platforms where you can actually embed iframes, GitHub Pages has been really, really good to me. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's free, which is awesome. And it's really uh, relatively easy to set up. So go to GitHub, uh, learn how to do GitHub Pages. Um, so what you do is just you create your own HTML files and you can just, you can embed whatever you want. It's not, you know, it's not as simple as having a WordPress. Actually, if you have a WordPress, use that. 
Um, and that might actually be simpler if you have an iframe and all that. But actually, no, even if you have an iframe, yeah, you would still want to have it linked to a simulation and you would want to host that simulation somewhere. So, you know, GitHub Pages is a really great way to host simulations or interactive stuff for free. So, yeah, use GitHub Pages. You can use GitHub Pages entirely, which I do, or you can use WordPress and a GitHub page. So that's the first uh, step. Um, and I guess that that's a, that's a technical step. Um, and I guess in terms of like practical, or at least like in terms of design, um, as I mentioned earlier, like going for the tour guide uh, method, like really works for me. And I've seen other methods done, like a uh, New York Times is a more of a surprising expectation failure, give you the headache and then give you the aspirin kind of a design pattern. So yeah, I guess just like look at a lot of explorer explanations and see like what design patterns and what story patterns uh, stand out to you. So my story pattern that I go to as a default is the tour guide story pattern. Uh, New York Times goes for that kind of surprise you uh, story pattern. Some other explorables I've seen are, are more game-like. They're more traditionally quote-unquote game-like. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, so that's the other step, like figure out like what patterns work for you. Um, and I guess like the third step is also like actually figuring out what you want to talk about. Um, at least for me, because I do a lot of like simulation-based stuff, um, the stuff that works best for me is science-related stuff. Like there are, there people have already built simulations. So in epidemiology, people, the CDC already uses simulations to help predict and prevent epidemics. So all I need to do is just like take that simulation, uh, strip out the complicated like stuff and just get the, like boil it down to its gist and then, uh, present that. But you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, science stuff you, or hard science stuff you can explain. Um, like the New York Times like explains data. Um, using the you draw it method. Uh, I've seen, I can't remember where, but I saw this philosophy explorable explanation, uh, where it's basically a Socratic dialogue. It has a dialogue with you about <laughs> the nature of knowledge and stuff. Uh, and actually there's one that was pretty recent. Uh, the MIT Media Lab did another kind of philosophy explorable about the trolley problem, but with self-driving cars. Oh yeah, cars. I remember that one. Yeah. yeah it's like, like, yeah, you know, you know, self-driving cars will have to, to decide, quote unquote, decide who gets to live or die in a, in a very edge case scenarios like, like that. So we're going to have to code our morality. We're going to have to explicitly put down our morality into code. So how are we going to do that? So yeah, so it's not just like science stuff or math stuff. I've seen a lot of explorables about math, but you know, uh, you can also do stuff about like real world data, which the New York Times does. You can do stuff about philosophy or like, other strange like news events. Oh, there's this one I love from the BBC. I, I would say like it had a little bit of a promise of execution, uh, but it was a choose your own adventure about being a Syrian refugee. And I actually learned a lot, you know, about like what choices and trade-offs do I have to make? Like, do I want to go directly across uh, the ocean, uh, which is more oh, direct, yeah. which means I have to cross mm -hmm. fewer borders, but there's a higher chance of me dying at sea. Um, alternatively, mm -hmm. do I want to, you know, try to go through Turkey or like, you know, go through other um, countries, which, you know, again, has the trade-off is, you know, I could be rejected at the border. I could be sent back. Uh, but at least, you know, I probably won't drown. And that's, I I, I learned a lot about from that, um, from that uh, explorable. So yeah. So like, yeah, it's not just science or math, which I think are awesome, but you know, you can also explain data. Uh, you can explore uh, real world events and news stories. You can ex explore, explore and explain philosophy. And, 
Uh, yeah, this, you can explore and explain psychology, your own stories. This field of explorables is just like still in such an early state that I, I can't even give you that specific of advice because we don't know what works and what doesn't. It's still really experimental. So you, dear listener, might be able to find out a new field or a new uh, application for explorables that no one has even tried yet. So good luck. <laughs> I'm sure there's loads of people out there and it's, it is an amazing field. And I think take some time when you go to explorable.es because you will spend like a good hour at least <laughs> just playing with all these different uh, simulations yeah. and interesting. Oh, come uh, think about problems. it. I've it's, never seen an explorable. It just sucks you in. I've right? never seen an explorable about art. See? Yeah, see, so that, oh, that's, that that's a nice. good open one. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know, like maybe... Art styles. Or, yeah, different yeah. like different art styles. Like, uh, ooh, an explorable by composition. Like, you could try out different compositions and see how crappy um, a non-composed painting looks. Or, or maybe <laughs> animation. Like, what if, uh, you know, different animation. Like, you know, um, actually, I think this would be pretty useful for like uh, web designers. Like, seeing different animation styles. You know, ease in, ease out. Like, you know, Disney was all about, you know. No, not Walt Disney, uh, Will Eisner talked about the 12 principles of animation. There's follow through, there's easing and ease out, there's anticipation. So what if you changed all the parameters of that? What if you got rid of different rules? What if you broke the rules? Because some animators like, I don't know, John Krafalski, uh, like totally break those rules. Their, their, their animation does not look anything like Disney. It's all twitchy mm -hmm. and creepy and you know how how, how does how would that play out you know so i've never seen an explorable about art or actually i have seen an explorable about, about music so that's there's another application yeah you could do yeah so the sky is the limit and even that's probably not the limit so you know art science <laughs> philosophy stories news data you know anything, do whatever pretty much anything yeah, it's so unexplored so do Anything. I, I don't know if I would say anything quite yet, because, you know, how would I make a game about <laughs> historical dialecticism? I don't know. You, you probably could. You, you probably actually could. But, um, <laughs> again, going for the, I, I just keep picking on historical dialecticism for some reason. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, yeah. You know, try whatever. In six weeks, you will have a website up on it. <laughs> <laughs> historical dialecticism. The game. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, sorry, I think we have to wrap it up soon. We're already mm -hmm. quite past our usual time, but it's been amazing chatting with you. I'm sure our listeners will like yeah, directly go to your page and uh, try out all the cool things you have produced. And yeah, maybe chip in on Patreon if you uh, Patreon from slash case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. <laughs> Dot com. And while you're at it, go to patreon.com slash data stories. I'm plugging <laughs> That's in a new good people one too. Yeah. Go to yeah, patreon.com slash data stories and throw coins. That's a nice combo. It's perfect. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Double combo. Karma combo. Excellent. Thanks so much, Nikki. Thanks Great so work. Much. We can't wait to see what, what you come up with next. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really interesting thoughts. And yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the whole story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's Q-L-I-K dot slash data stories.